This trip was brought to you by our good friends at River. You want to do mining? Talking about mining, River makes it very easy to mine in a professional way. You go to river.com slash TFTC, set up an account. You go to river.com slash mining after that, and you can pick an ASIC. They have many ASICs for sale. Uh, some are already plugged in with hosting contracts, so you can buy an ASIC and lock in a hosting contract immediately. You purchase it. You're already up and hashing and satcher streaming to your River account, whether you're an individual or uh, a larger institution wants to mine a lot. River is here to help you. They have a white glove professional service that'll walk you through the process that'll get you set up. Or if you don't want them walk you through the process, you can just go through the website, through the app and, and do it without having to talk to anybody. I shouldn't say I'm not certain, but maybe you do have to talk to somebody. But point is, it's a great way to mine. They're doing it the right way. So go check it out. Go to river.com slash TFTC. Set up an account today. ASICs are cheap. Still cheap. Still in the bear market. It's a good time. About 11 months out from the halving. So get all those sats with 6.25 block subsidy rewards while you can. River.com slash TFTC. This trip was also brought to you by our good friends down the hall. Unchained. They're here to help you eliminate single points of failure in your custody model. They're building a Bitcoin financial institution the right way by leveraging Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties. Their vault product is a two or three multi-sig wallet. It allows you to hold two keys and Unchained to hold one. You eliminate single points of failure in this model. Since you hold two keys, you control the Bitcoin in the vault at any given point in time. But if you're ever in a pinch, Unchained is there to be the second in the two or three multi-sig quorum. Beyond that, they have their trading desk. If you want to buy Bitcoin and send it straight to your vault after you have it set up, Unchained's the best place to do it. You can do it all in one place. It's the best place to buy Bitcoin in bulk. You buy and it goes straight to cold storage. On top of that, they have their lending desk, their IRA, their inheritance protocol. Again, all revolving around native multi-sig properties that Bitcoin has that reduces single points of failure. It is the future. Go to Unchained.com. Tell them the TFTC sent you. Talk to their concierge team. They'll walk you through everything I just described. This trip is also brought to you by good friends at CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is here to help you bring sovereignty back to your healthcare and how you pay for it. Incumbent health insurance is notoriously opaque, expensive, impersonal. CrowdHealth is the complete opposite. It's cheaper. It's transparent. And it's very personal. You get a personal health advocate. Once you get onboarded to CrowdHealth, CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's crowdfunded healthcare. So the way it works is you become a member. And then when you have to go to the doctor, you let CrowdHealth know, hey, I'm going to go to the doctor. They'll either help you find one or connect to your doctor that you're going to. Uh, once you go to the doctor, you get the bill. You bring it back to CrowdHealth. They negotiate the bill lower with the doctor. And then you pay the first $500 of that bill. And the rest gets crowdfunded by the CrowdHealth community. Me and my family are on this. We've used this. It works flawlessly. And again, it's cheaper because you have metrics they have to meet to get into the crowd health community. It's a relatively healthier community of individuals. And so overall healthcare costs for the crowd health community are lower. So you're paying less than you would with insurance. So if you're on Cobra, uh, any of that stuff, consider crowd health. Go to joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC. Sign up today. And get a deal on your membership fees for the first six months. This trip was also 
brought to you by our good friends at Bitcoin Talent Co. It's a recruiting firm built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. If you're a company in the space looking to hire the best talent in the world, go set up, go get set up with Bitcoin Talent Co. They'll understand your needs, uh, what you are looking for, what your company does. Again, it's a recruiting firm by Bitcoiners, so they understand the difference between multi-sig, mining, lightning. They actually understand Bitcoin, so you're not just spraying and praying with a random recruiter to hope that they can actually understand what you need. Bitcoin Talent Co. will understand, already does understand. Likewise, if you are talent stranded in big tech, big banking, big finance, you're a Bitcoiner looking to get into the space, set up a profile on Bit- with Bitcoin Talent Co. Go to bitcointalent.co to do all this. Tell them the TFTC sent you and enjoy this rip. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Sam Wooders, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Marty. Happy well, to be here. I'm, ha- I'm happy that you're here. I mean, you're you're one of the most prolific researchers in Bitcoin these days, and not these days ever, I would say. Diving deep into a lot of the uh, the different areas of Bitcoin mining. You've wrote a big mining report in the past, but the most recent one, Bitcoin adoption, global remittance the the landscape of of that part of of the Bitcoin world. Before we jump into all that, tell us a little bit a little bit about yourself, sir. What are you doing? Uh, How'd sure. you get here? How'd I get here? Um, I initially found Bitcoin through. Uh, well, how am I doing? That's a brief one. That's pretty good. But how did I find Bitcoin? How did I end up here? Uh, I initially found Bitcoin through. Uh, a friend of mine and I were playing an online game that had its own kind of trading economy. And uh, I was pretty good at the trading, so was he. Um, and you could actually exchange the money that you earned in the game for real life money because there were obviously people who preferred just not spending the time in the game to try to get some kind of resources or get some achievement. They would just buy it with their cash. So uh, some kind of exchange market emerged there. And I realized actually as a teenager through trading, I could make money just by exchanging this this virtual currency that's on here for real life money. So that got me pretty excited. And then after a couple years, uh, these people that would sort of act as a broker between the buyer and seller, uh, or just some of the direct buyers, they started accepting all kinds of payment methods. And one of them at some point eventually became Bitcoin. So I first heard about that and sort of through my experience from the game, it very quickly clicked for me because the game itself also had scarce virtual goods that would never be released again. There was only a certain amount of them in the game and those started to accrue a lot of value. A lot of the trading that happened in the game, people would put their money towards those rare goods because they knew they would likely appreciate over time. So for me, Bitcoin was super obvious, sort of the the value proposition there. And uh, as a result, I got pretty excited about it. But at the same time, I felt like this sounds too good to be true. Like, what's the catch? What if there is some kind of 
person behind this that can somehow rug everyone. Um, so I started learning about it, just a little bit more about the technology behind it. And I'm not a technological person by background, so I really struggled in the beginning as there was pretty much no non-technical explanation out there. Um, but then Andreas Antonopoulos started emerging and like gave a lot of talks, gave a lot of presentations. I was like, dang, finally someone I can understand. And uh, Andreas, like historically, always super impressive with all of his talks. Uh, and after a couple of months of learning, I finally started feeling like, I think I get it. But if it takes everyone who isn't technical this long to understand, then it's never going to take off. So I tried to sort of take that role, figuring like I'm never going to be as good as Andreas, but maybe, you know, there's only one Andreas in the world. So there can probably be lots of other Bitcoin educators out there. So I started writing, started giving presentations, uh, probably done like 100 plus presentations for all kinds of audiences like uh, boards of directors at companies, uh, management teams, uh, public events, private events, uh, in finance, in many different industries. And uh, kind of looking at your, your Trojan horse right next to you, that was kind of my approach as well in the, the um, 2017-ish, 2016-2017 era, when blockchain became the hot thing. I became a blockchain speaker, so to speak. But uh, the only blockchain I could really talk about was Bitcoin because it was the only one with sort of real life data on it and everything else was just speculation and theories of how it could be used. So it sort of approached it from there are these open blockchains like Bitcoin that are uh, really interesting and out there and you should be paying attention to it. And then there's all this theoretical stuff that people want to do that probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But as a result, I sort of got into a lot of places that I otherwise wouldn't have gotten into. And a lot of those people were ultimately just interested in Bitcoin. Very often, actually, the event organizer or the, the person, <laughs> contact person, they would want me there just because they like Bitcoin. And this was sort of the, the kind of way of getting that conversation going there. Um, so I've always been passionate about education. And uh, since uh, roughly a year ago, I started at a river, uh, which has been an amazing experience. I've, I've pretty much loved all of it. Uh, and I've been doing research reports. I have a bit of background in research as well from uh, my first job, which wasn't in Bitcoin. I worked at a consulting firm and we did tons of research there in all kinds of industries. Wasn't one of the big four. We were smaller and more nimble and not as uh, hand wavy. I like to think, but probably all consultants say that. So uh, <laughs> yeah, kind of, kind of took a lot of the skills and things that I learned over my career. And I think one of the main advantages I have in education is that English isn't my first language. So I, I also, I can't go really complicated in terms of language and how I explain and describe things because I just don't know the words or I'm not as fluent in using them as, as a, a native speaker might be. So that helps to keep it more accessible for people. And I really try to be that bridge between the technical and the non-technical people and sort of helping people who are eager to learn about Bitcoin to at least understand a bit more about it. Yeah. And you do a very good job of it. And thank you. As is evidenced by the research report we're going to discuss today, 72 pages. And I didn't realize you had that consulting background. So it really shows yeah. in, in the way you present all of it. And it's got chapters and it's very well um, organized and has a flow to it. Um, one question before we get into that. What video game are you playing? Uh, it was called RuneScape. Oh, RuneScape, yeah. So at the time you had World of Warcraft, that was like the biggest MMO, and then the second biggest was RuneScape. And my friends played that. Uh, I started playing it when I was like 12, I think. And then I think by the time I was 16, 17 or so, all of them had quit. But I just stuck around purely for the trading because it was a lot of fun at the time. Yeah. Um, 
and I just kept doing that over the years. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned it, but I know this just from speaking with you personally, uh, the few times that we've been able to meet in person, like your passion for education. And like you mentioned, it's really hard for people to get this stuff, like trying to break it down the way you do and many others do like Andreas or um, like somebody like uh, BTC Sessions and uh, Bitcoin Audible, Guy Swan, breaking it down. Like what, what are your thoughts about the landscape of educational resources compared to like 2017, that era? I, I think it's grown a lot. Like a lot of people have sort of found their niche because Bitcoin itself has grown so much. Uh, and you can definitely feel that when you hop around topics, how sort of thinly stretched you very quickly get. Like when you dive into mining, you realize there's so much more to mining that you don't know once you dive deeply into it. And there's many topics like this. Um, so I think like in general, there's a, there are a lot of resources. What I think could be improved in general would be for people to understand what, like what should actually be sharing with someone, what is actually relevant for them versus like, like what can I just explain to them myself? Because I see this a lot when people are eager about Bitcoin, they try to explain it to others. They just very quickly dump a book on them or a podcast episode on them or like, go listen to this, this one hour conversation on Bitcoin payments, for example, as we might have, or go read this 400 page book explaining why the economy is screwed and, and you know, like what, how Bitcoin is a solution. Like typically when you ask someone about something like, I don't know, like how does nuclear energy work? They don't dump the Wikipedia page on you or a 500 page book. They just give like a relatively short overview of the pros and cons or something without coloring it really strongly. Like I strongly believe in nuclear and it's a future of energy. And <laughs> the moment you start going off like that, people go like, whoa, like I'm, I was just asking like, I'm, or, or not even asking and they get dumped that information on it. So uh, I think in general, like the educators do a great job. I think it's much more the audience in general could at times use a bit more evaluation of like, what can I do myself without just immediately passing them off to some kind of educator who's probably going to do a good job, taking a little bit more ownership of that, like sort of like we all have to do this together in a way. We all have to educate the people around us and it's difficult, but you know, if you take ownership of it, I think you can do a much better job of it than like, I'm just going to give them some one minute pitch and then I'll start dumping resources on them uh, as that's not how everyone likes to learn. Some people love books. A lot of people love podcasts, but it's not always the first immediate step that you should hand over to them. So uh, that is not on the educators, I think, to tell their audience, like, you know, don't send my episodes to potentially interested people. That's not really how it works, but uh, it's much more the listener. I think we should think a little bit about, like, maybe this is too much information to be handing this person immediately. And uh, I could take smaller steps. Yeah putting my listener cap on it's never worked for me historically like yeah here nakamoto institute guy swans like bitcoin audible like bitcoin standard fiat standard read all this and then come back two weeks later like did you read any of it like no it was way too much yeah it is it's just quickly and and everyone also tries to make the best introduction to bitcoin like the best articles and things there's so many portals platforms books um and even that can just be very overwhelming. It's, you know, it's as decentralized as Bitcoin itself in a way. Yeah. No, I've been, I've really, uh, in the last three or four years, been uh, way less pushy about pushing resources on people. I'm like, hey, if you want to learn, 
download a wallet, play around with it, send some Bitcoin from Cash App or wherever, Strike, yep. River, uh, to to a wallet and um, and play around with it. If you have any questions, ask me. Yep. Slowly but surely, they'll come back. Like, yeah, what's going on here? What's going on there? And you start seeding, seeding responses that way. Slowly but surely, people yep. learn. People are going to have to learn. But do you think, uh, yeah. I mean, let's dive into the report, what you found, which leads to a broader question of like, do you think Bitcoin is going to be successful in achieving its goals of being good store value and layered payments network? Because um, I think one of the mm-hmm. most interesting things that you pointed out in this particular research report is that it's probably likely that there's way less like material Bitcoin holders than many people are estimating right now. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the big, I think findings for me anyways, it was a bit of an eye opener because you often see these numbers thrown around of like Coinbase and Binance have a hundred million plus signed up accounts and like estimates that say like there must be 400 million crypto owners, uh, which is also like, okay, do they still own it today? Uh, was that at the peak of the bull market? Like lots of people don't really question the numbers. They just kind of share them without really thinking it through. So I thought like, let's like, as one of the parts of the report, let's challenge that a bit and dive into some of these things to really figure out like how many people have adopted Bitcoin, like in which countries is that like just looking at absolute numbers rather than always kind of the comparisons of, okay, where people sort of relatively searching more or where are there more meetups and all of these kinds of things. Um, So there's just been a lot of eye opening things in general, like, I felt like it has least touched on the whole store of value thing, the report in general, because I feel like reasonably confident there that like, in my opinion, that Bitcoin is going to play a big role in it, but it's much more about the medium of exchange where I just had a lot of questions as someone in Bitcoin for a long time. I like with all of these reports so far, I've always felt like there are just things that you tend to assume or you hear a lot over time, but then as you dive into them, you challenge some of that stuff. Um, and I guess like a really concrete example there is that you often hear about, you know, people pay huge remittance fees all over the world for just on average, like to try to send money back home. And then actually when you look into the data, because you, you often hear these things, like some people are paying like 20% or whatever on a remittance, and you look into the data and it's like, actually, it's a very small percentage of the total remittance market. It's smaller than you realize, which doesn't mean those people don't matter. It doesn't mean it doesn't have a massive impact on their life. But it does mean that sort of like when you explain Bitcoin to people and you explain how it could play a role in payments, that for the vast majority of the population, the value proposition is not for them specifically if it was in a case of remittances, because they don't feel that pain. They don't pay the 10%. They might only pay or, or only like they might pay 3 4% or something like that, which is still significant. But I mean, like we have... In many countries, 10% inflation, and apparently that's not significant enough for a lot of people either to sort of have a wake-up call. So when you have that realization, like actually the data is a bit different than I thought it might be, you it, it sort of changes your perception of, of Bitcoin, how it could play a role and shift some things there. Um, and this is really like, why do I do the research? I also get this question from people sometimes. Like, you know, what, why are you diving into this? What's what's in it for River? What's what's the point of doing all of this? And so far with the first one was the Lightning Report, where we shared the insights from River's nodes, which are some of the biggest in the Lightning Network. Second one was sort of on the future of mining. So what does Bitcoin mining look like at 1Zash? 
And then this third one on payments, they're all topics that are important for Bitcoiners in the long run. And we have clients who are Bitcoiners who put like significant amounts of money in there and they want to understand like what, you know, what is the long term of the network look like? How is everything going to develop? Is all of this like, is it just talk or, or is there real substance here? Like what are the meaningful developments? And I tried to dive into those things and make them digestible for people. And you could argue, well, 72 page report, is that digestible? Uh, it's much more about like sort of lifting out the relevant parts, giving them an executive summary, highlighting some, some pieces of that in separate articles. Um, and that's really what we try to do with it. The report itself is just the base for people who want to dive deeper and have all of the structure and all of the insights. But uh, from there, we can draw a lot and share that with people in, in newsletters, in social media posts, in articles on RiverLearn and uh, all of this kind of stuff. So the idea I had behind the structure for the report was like, actually relatively simple. Like what is the sort of a Venn diagram of you have the cross-border payments on one side as a pretty big chunk. It's uh, quite a significant volume. We're talking like trillions and trillions of dollars every year. Um, and what I found interesting there was that there's a lot of estimations by really big firms, among them consulting firms, uh, referencing earlier, that all contradict each other on like, what are the volumes like? Because they all use slightly different um, methodologies to figure this out. So they're never accurate numbers. It's not like they aggregate all of the data from all of the banks and then figure out like, what was the actual remittance volume in 2021? They literally just use all kinds of extrapolations and estimations and uh, just smaller scale research and then try to figure out what is it like on a global scale. Um, and like that whole space, that's just like, for me, that was in a way, a bit of a black box. Like I, over the years being in Bitcoin, I'd read up on a lot of it just to sort of understand like what's going on there, but I never really put the pieces together in the way I did in the reports and gave me a lot of clarity anyway, to understand like what is happening cross-border payments rather than always just shouting, um, you know, like Bitcoin's going to be the most successful thing. It's going to replace all of the financial institutions and. We're all going to be using that for payments. Those are very easy statements to make if you're a big believer in Bitcoin, but it helps to first have the context of how does the current system work? Like what kind of data can we derive from it? Uh, where are the payments happening? What are the actual hurdles? Uh, if you just drill down into it. And uh, that's what I spent a lot of time doing in that first chapter to sort of get a feel for what, you know, what, what are we up against in a way? Because that's ultimately in the report. It's like Bitcoin versus the, $156 trillion uh, global payments industry. And it's, yeah, like in order to defeat that that big behemoth, so to speak, uh, you have to actually understand what's going on there. And then in the second chapter, I looked at sort of that second circle of the Venn diagram, like what is the state of Bitcoin adoption? What are people using Bitcoin for? How many people are using Bitcoin as we were touching on? And then in the third chapter, kind of looking at the overlap between those, like what like which people are using Bitcoin for cross-border payments already in the different segments, so in B2B and B2C, C2B, which is uh, e-commerce, and then in C2C, which is remittances. So just getting a feel for that, like what's already out there, what is being developed. And in the final chapter, I looked at sort of how can we push more of that that remittance circle or the, sorry, the cross-border payment circle into the Bitcoin circle? How do we grow adoption essentially? So I figured that was a logical structure to kind of work through what is going on in that entire industry. Uh, and alongside it, just looking into Bitcoin itself, which a lot of people are also curious about, like, where do we stand? Uh, like, how fast has it been growing? 
how should we be looking at that? Is it, you know, are we looking at four year cycles, et cetera? So uh, that's sort of the structure I, I set up for the whole report. And uh, we can like dive into the individual chapters and all kinds of things there. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, let's dive in. And I, again, I really like number one, you're doing this research and number two, the way in which you're doing it, because I completely agree. Like we can go out there and shout these platitudes and rah, rah. But if it's not actually like computing with the reality of the world, like we want to be operating from a position of strength and that strength being driven by like actually like good information that we're using to explain Bitcoin and knowledge, what we're up against and, so yeah, let's start with chapter one, like the landscape of the mm-hmm. global uh, remittance and payments networks. Is it's got yeah. a spectrum from like government entities, uh, private companies, different sort of interchanges, uh, fintech mm-hmm. companies coming into the fray. What, what's it look like, and how did you find all this data? Because I imagine uh, it's siloed in a bunch of different spots. Yeah, through a lot of tears. Uh, maybe to add on to what you said, <laughs> that's, that's like the honest answer. I've had this question a bunch, like, how do you find the data? It's it's hard. That's the hardest part about what I do, uh, I think, because we also reached out to a lot of companies, even in the Bitcoin space itself, to try to get data on some things. And companies are competitive, so they don't always want to share, and they often don't want to share, uh, or they want to share qualitative insights, which are a bit more... You know, they kind of talk a little bit about the things that they've done well from like a client perspective or a partner perspective. But if you put together a big report with those kinds of insights, it's not going to be super interesting for everyone because it's just a lot of opinions sort of gathered together. Um, so yeah, getting the data is the hardest part of it. We can definitely talk about that. Um, and I think maybe to add on to what you were saying, like the way the report is structured, it's for me, it's also important that it's a Bitcoin focused report because there's a lot of there are already a bunch of reports around crypto adoption and crypto uh, sort of usage, even for payment specific. There's plenty of things out there about it. But if reports in general are always about crypto and never focus on Bitcoin, then sort of looking from the whole consulting world, the tech world, et cetera, that look at these kinds of publications, if they only ever see crypto and Bitcoin is a part of that, then that's their perspective of where Bitcoin stands. It's a part of crypto. And it helps you to understand a little bit about, which it did for me anyway, it helps you to understand why so many people who are smart never really got that distinction. Uh, like they're smart in their own respective fields, but they never really understood like Bitcoin is de- separate from that because everything I'm seeing, all of the reports, all of the articles uh, on all of these websites, they always lump the two together and describe it as if Bitcoin is a part of that. Um, so having Bitcoin focused reports really helps you to like make a bit of a stand there and say like, this is the data that's specific to what we care about, which is the Bitcoin industry and everything around that. Like we're just not specifically looking at in this report. There is obviously some comparison to other methods, but um, yeah, that's kind of making a stand in a way of where, you know, where Bitcoin focused, that's what we spend our energy on. Um, and I wouldn't be able to do that anywhere. I think besides river, because that's kind of the philosophy of the company. We don't shout that we're maximalists. We just spend our time on Bitcoin because that's what we believe in. And your actions kind of speak louder than your words there. Um, so that's always been a bit of the focus. But anyway, let's get into the the first chapter, I think, on the global cross-border payments industry. And I've already done it in, in, in this podcast so far. You've done it too, where you kind of switch up remittance and payments. And one of the first insights that helps for people to understand is that remittance is just one 
form of payments. So you have the four quadrants that I mentioned, the B2B, which is the vast majority of the cross-border payments volume in the world today. Uh, something like 96.7%. So for me, that was one of the first insights where my eyes just went, wow, that is insane. Like we are just a blip on the radar when it comes to just sending money between people because it's all between big companies and firms internationally. Uh, and it helps you to understand a little bit about like, why are those banks so focused on corporate clients and, mm -hmm. and all of these kinds of products and, and corporate banking in general? It's because that's where, you know, where a lot of the money is made, where sort of relatively speaking, a lot of the revenue is. Uh, and that was for me, one of the most interesting insights. And I saw this very much reflected when I looked at all of the reports that are out there about the cross-border payments market, the traditional one, because all of the reports talk about revenue. They all talk about what is the revenue in the industry. They don't talk about volumes. They don't talk about how can we make this faster, more convenient, easier, et cetera. They just look at like, how can we make money? Like, how can we satisfy investor needs uh, and all of these kinds of things? So it gives you a very, like, they're just in a different world almost. They don't think about the world of payments the way the average Bitcoiner does. They think of it very much from a business perspective and from an international settlement perspective and, They've all just very much accepted that yes, it's slow and costly and whatever, but you know we make plenty of money. So yeah, it's a means to a revenue stream. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I think like I looked at a bunch of reports. I wanted to share much more data around how do how do payments flow sort of internationally between businesses because I was quite curious about it. Like you know, what's it like? How much money goes from the U.S. to China to the UAE to all kinds of countries? But the tricky part is that all of that data is like proprietary. It's like, uh, if you want to get access to it, you pay like $5,000 for a report and then you're not allowed to share it anywhere. You can't publish it, you can't talk about it or they'll sue you. So it's like a report for industry in insiders essentially, and you can't really get a feel for, you know, where are the market opportunities. So it very much protects them from even getting competitors in a market because they have such a moat, even in terms of information, like where do you start you can really only start if you've worked in the industry and you've had your hands on all of that data. Mm -hmm. You can't really challenge it from the outside using the traditional model. So hence like Bitcoin doesn't specifically care about a lot of the data. Bitcoin doesn't care about borders. This is not really a concept for it in some ways. Uh, so that just naturally makes it easier to try to challenge it rather than working in such an opaque market, which is uh, pretty crazy. Um, so I, like, I kind of struggled there to find really good insights that I could share in terms of B2B volume. And for me, that was you know kind of at the start of the report. That's where I started out. Bit of a bummer when you realize like actually some of this stuff is crazy hard to find and get a bit of an insight into. Well, like what type of information are they keeping close to the chest? Like, as I imagine, maybe this is just naive and uh, naive of me. It's just like for B2B, it's just like one business has a bank account in one country, the other business has a bank account in another country and then they just do uh, a wire. You pay my, my bank, mm -hmm. we'll do a FX exchange, pay the fees and then boom, transaction settled. Yeah. Or has there been this whole FinTech sort of UI UX layered on top of it that makes it faster? It's yeah, it's, it's that too, but it, it, it's mostly like they just don't share like what, like there are all kinds of questions you can ask about, like how do businesses send money internationally? For example, how much of that volume is just literally uh, some international conglomerate doing internal accounting? I would be interested 
in knowing that, like how much of an issue is that? Because we've had, um, at a company we run River Lightning Services, and like we service all kinds of clients with that who are interested in integrating with the Lightning Network. We actually had some people talk about like, okay, could this also be used for just settlement between our own branches in different countries and all kinds of things? Like, is that even something that we should consider? So you just start having questions there, like how big is that market out there? Like how many companies might potentially be interested in using something like that, where Lightning is just used in the background to settle their international transactions, but instead of waiting a couple of days before transactions get settled, it could just be much faster. So there, there's lots of questions like this that you might have around, like, as I was already saying, how much money is moving between certain countries? What kind of fees are paid on average? Uh, like where in general are people struggling the most with the whole flow? Like where do the mistakes happen? And I just like, when I started the research, I just started listing out all of these questions just off the top of my head that I have that I don't understand about the industry that I'd love to know. Um, and I just tried to dig into it and figure out like, are there data sources around this? Is there anyone writing about this that I could try and interview? Um, and then you just start hitting walls everywhere where you realize this is actually uh, a lot more difficult to get into than you realized. So uh, yeah, there's I think there's lots of insights to be gathered there that could sort of help us in Bitcoin as well to understand like how can we better service sort of the our service, like it's a weird way of saying it, but how could we be more appealing for B2B? Because that's one of my findings sort of in the third chapter is that B2B is like the lowest in terms of adoption. There's like very, like relatively little traction there. Uh, and this is, you know, this is one of the reasons why that's the case, obviously, because there just isn't isn't as much insight from the Bitcoin world into what is that segment struggling with and how could we better uh, convince them to join Team Orange, so to speak. Yeah, and it's the most massive market to go after in this payments world. Yeah, it is. It is, but it, that's like in many businesses, I guess it's often the, the B2B side of things is where the, the big contracts are and the the big deal. So it's a lot of focus there, but yes, I kind of struggled a bit there, but then I moved on to uh, B2C, which is all about like, you know, international payroll. That one, there's like a little bit more shared there because obviously consumers are a bit more willing to share data around all of this. Uh, so that gives you a bit of a, an idea as well in, in what is happening in that segment. And, you know, in general, anyone who gets paid internationally just knows it. Like there's always a good foreign exchange fee on top there. Um, and you quickly jump to that conclusion of, okay, but could Bitcoin play a role there until you ultimately realize, well, there would still be some kind of fee at an, on an off ramp somewhere in a lot of cases. So there can be some challenges there, but, uh, we can, we can dive into that one a little bit later. Uh, I think for me, a really like kind of crazy insight that it kind of confirmed what I already knew, but seeing it in numbers really opened my eyes is e-commerce. So coming from a first world country, like a, a Western country, you, uh, like I'm based in the Netherlands, uh, you kind of have this impression that most people use e-commerce, like they'll buy things online uh, and in the US as well, has among the highest adoption in the world. And you get this perspective of that's something that everyone does. But then I saw the numbers and actually only 38% of the global population in 2021 had done an e-commerce transaction. And that's like over over the age of 15. So it's not the entire global population, but not too far off either. Um, Enough of the population with actual money then. Yeah. And then you very quickly realize like 38% after two decades of sort of, or 
you could argue one decade since mobile phones have become a bit more prevalent, uh, you come to the realization like that's taken a long time to get traction. And in a similar way, like everyone who expects that hyper Bitcoinization is going to happen in a matter of a few years because money is more important than just kind of playing around buying things online, perhaps. Uh, but like there's just so many struggles and challenges. And yes, the fact that everyone, almost everyone has a mobile phone, like 85% of the global population, I believe, or 86 or so, that helps. It gets it in the hands of more people, but still there are so many people who have just never done a payment on their phone. And then you're going to get them on self-custody or even a custodial service and help them feel comfortable with a radically different form of money that's going to take more than just a few years. So 38%, that's what? 2.7 billion people have only ever, out of 8 billion. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was in 2021. They only like update. This is, I think, data from the World Bank. They only update it every four years or so because they're just massive, massive projects to undertake. Uh, it's also something that helps you understand like why are there relatively few data sources out there? Why do a bunch of them vary like double-digit percentage points uh, at time? So e-commerce, so what's that? 62% of the world is not, that's another way to frame it. 62% of the world has not, did not make an e-commerce payment in 2021. We're running with this. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Like e-commerce like for me, payment defined as like, even as something like downloading and paying for an app. That's yeah. Just, e just any, any kind of digital payment to a, to a merchant is how they defined it. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's just a big realization that like, obviously, yes, you know, you didn't have the smartphone penetration worldwide during a lot of those years that e-commerce became a thing, but nonetheless, it just helps you to understand that any kind of new technology that comes up, even anything, like even CBDCs, people are also concerned, like this would be, you know, the government would just force it on you and it would be there within a couple of weeks and everyone would be using it. Like, that's just not how it works practically. Because you can imagine how the government would start sending you, you know, like flyers in your in your mailbox and just all kinds of campaigns and explaining this this would take years to roll out just purely from a user perspective. And uh, yeah, for me, it confirms what I always kind of felt like Bitcoin adoption is going to take time. But when you just see a stat like that, you quickly realize like, yes, you know, if you see it for something as simple as e-commerce, especially with COVID having happened, you would think a lot of people like being locked down, a lot more people would rely on something like this. But even then still, there's just lots of people that never engaged. Yeah, it's a very important point to make. Yeah, 2021, everybody was in their houses globally. Yeah. Still 62% and not make an e-com transaction. I find yeah. that hard to believe. Yeah, I mean, like the way I expect a lot of it to happen, because I remember, I remember when, especially in China early on, there were lots of, uh, like that they essentially started first with the lockdown. So you started reading these stories about how they would sort of internally in a building organize themselves through a chat app mm -hmm. where one person would sort of make a bulk order of food at a certain place. And then I'm guessing everyone would just pay them in cash. So, you know, it's kind of like almost like the UTXO model in Bitcoin where, you mm -hmm. know, one UTXO could actually be held by someone who was holding Bitcoin for lots of different parties. So in a similar way, you'll see lots of that in the physical world as well, where you know there's that one uh, tech savvy person who does does the online payments for their entire family, for example. And then when you survey a whole group, then they might say, "Well, I didn't do any digital payments, but 
you know, I ask my cousin or something because he knows all about this stuff or my son does everything for me. And you get all of those kinds of situations where it kind of gets lumped together a lot. And the same in any kind of family, you might just have the man or the woman who does the online shopping and the other one doesn't. And as a result, they don't qualify. So when you take that into account, you do start to understand more, like, why is it such a relatively low number Uh, as you're like, what you're saying just now, like it doesn't sound right. I've had that so much doing this this research where you just try to take a step back and like, does this number actually make sense or is it just totally ridiculous? Um, and that helps you to, to scrutinize some of it and figure out like, you know, could I think of the arguments and reasons why it isn't higher than it is? And when you do that thought exercise, you, yeah, it helps you to understand like, okay, there's probably lots of people who depend on others to do that for them. But then like, again, translating to a Bitcoin context, as, as we already know, like everyone's seen it, there's just lots of people that ask you, could you hold my Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. Uh, for, could you hold it for me? Because I don't feel that comfortable. Like that's the same thing as asking someone like, like I don't feel super comfortable shopping online. Can you order this thing for me? It's uh, no different there. So it helps you to understand that if after all these years, people are still asking others to do the e-commerce for them, probably like it's not a one-on-one comparison obviously it's not identical but you're going to see just a lot of similar behavior there over the years so it just takes time a lot of one-to-many transactions Uh yeah that as well yeah yeah so for me like just diving into these types of questions it already helps me to understand more about the challenges we might face in bitcoin or how long some things can potentially take it'll probably be relatively faster um and people like to pull up that graph of sort of uh Bitcoin adoption relative to internet adoption. Um, and it's kind of like tracking along nicely, mm-hmm. sort of relatively speaking. Um, and yeah, those things are really exciting, but then it's also important to understand like where, where is it different? Because Bitcoin adoption, like awesome that it's growing fast, but it's just harder for people in the internet because they are trusting money to it. Like people don't like losing money. Whereas on the internet, like what was the worst thing that could happen to you in the early years? Like, well, you come across a weird website that, either you get a virus or something or uh, that you download off the internet or you come across something that scars you for life uh, <laughs> but that's like just about the worst that's gonna happen right but losing your life saving that is terrifying for people so um hey you uh yeah. you have a friend tell you to go to lemonparty.org and you don't know what it is you go and uh don't go don't go to that freaks i don't know if that website's still up but yeah you get scarred for life um yeah but bitcoin much more intense you lose yeah. your money yeah. like prime trust some of the oh. qualified custodians in the space can't even custody your funds yeah. correctly um, yeah our, our ceo alex put a poll out on twitter i think just might have been yesterday or a couple of days ago i'm not sure about like people that have lost money from self-custody as well because that's the other side of it not using a custodian but self-custody most of them just lose it due to screw-ups in their self-custody setup and not because their keys have actually been compromised. So it's like, uh, you know, custodians, they, they struggle, obviously, even with, with these keys. And I was just chatting to him about it earlier. But uh, people who do self-custody also screw up plenty of times. So it's, uh, it's just such a learning curve. And then to think that, you know, a lot of the population is going to sort this out in the, in the near future, there's uh, definitely major challenges there that we have yeah. to overcome. Oh, yeah. UX challenges, UI challenges, getting people comfortable with handling cryptographic material, understanding what a private public key pair is. I think 
excited to see more people experimenting with mini script. I do. If like some like mini script we could use today, something op vault or op CTV that allows you to create sort of spending conditions that have fallbacks. If you do mess up part of your, your security yeah. is, is very interesting. I, I could see that making it easier, more approachable for individuals. Yeah. And, and just give people so much peace of mind that, you know, it's actually possible to mess up or, you know, if for some reason my keys get compromised, there is actually some kind of fallback. That's, that's been the one thing that's always been so scary to people that mm-hmm. it's so permanent. Um, and having some, I feel like, you know, especially faults, they have such an interesting kind of middle ground there to add this kind of comfort for people. Um, so yeah, definitely excited about that. But, yeah. Um, I think like one, one other area where it's sort of like going back to the remittance stuff that I was seeing in the uh, research is that there's a really big struggle for education in remittance as well. So the average fees that people pay globally for remittances is 6.24%, um, which is like pretty dang significant for the, like, you know, just imagine that going out of your paycheck every month is just crazy. It's like, I think I did the math. There was something like, um, a certain number of days a month out of like your working days, I think like one out of 21 days or something like that is just to pay your fees, which is kind of a, it's not fun. Um, what's driving yeah, those is, fees but, is FX exchange, just simple middleman rent seeking. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And obviously it gets pulled up a lot through the correspondent banking system. It is called where instead of people using some kind of fintech provider, they just use the banking system. And then there's just massive delays of days because those banks are in different time zones, uh, which are also like, those are simple things I never really thought of before. Like why are sort of like, why does it take days to send these payments internationally? It's like, well, if bank A needs to go to bank B on the other side of the world, and there are two or three hops in between, and they're in different time zones and they work on business days, like business hours then it could be that a batch of transactions, like it needs to be validated or something internally before it gets forwarded to the next one. And those people are just at home eating dinner uh, and they'll be up again the next day to send it to the next party that might again, not like have the policy where they check up on this every hour or something. And so you very quickly start understanding like, why do all those hours and things rack up? Um, But you know, I'm not gonna defend their fees in any way. Uh, because they're just like, obviously they're just high, but what was striking to me was that, um, there's some kind of indicator they call like the smart indicator or something, some acronym, uh, I don't know it exactly, but it basically said that if all of the consumers were fully informed about their remittance options, they could pay as little as, or as little as, sorry, they worded it 3.31%. So it's like 3% lower than what people are actually paying today on average. So that shows that even in just traditional remittances, if people understood, if I just look at what my options are to send money between this country and that country, then I could take off quite a few percent and just pay cheaper. But a lot of people, they just find an option. They're like, all right, I've managed to explain how this one works to my aunt or something that I have to wire money to, or my dad or whoever. Um, and like, that's just what we're going to stick with. Even though we pay a couple percent more, at least they get this, then we don't have to switch. Or maybe I'll explain it to them in uh, nine months when I'm back home or something. But in the meantime, they just keep using that thing. So even there, there's just a struggle for education as a lot of people never really orient themselves into cheaper options. So there's definitely a struggle there, I think, for people who do remittances in general to 
like they're not going to go out, I think, in a lot of cases and research, like, how does that Bitcoin thing work and how could I potentially, you know, pay less transaction fees to uh, receive this money from the US in my specific country? Um, that's just like, it's, it's a really hard, hard and long journey to get to that point where you understand Bitcoin enough to be able to say, all right, that's how I'll receive my payment and I'll go to this local exchange or whatever and turn it into my uh, fiat currency locally here. So, you know, that's not a journey that a lot of people can take themselves. And there's also often education lacking in a specific language for a lot of these countries, where there might not be any local exchanges and they all just use something international. Um, so lots of challenges there, but it, it just puts it in perspective. If, if people are even struggling in traditional remittances to figure out what's my cheapest option, then it's kind of a stretch to think that they're going to put some time into understanding Bitcoin because so many people have talked about it. Um, it's just not a, a thing in a lot of minds. They're, that's not what they're, they're focused on. It's like, how could I get the cheapest possible payment? Could Bitcoin play a role there? Um, yeah, they've got other stuff even, in their mind. Yeah, and they're not even thinking about it. The, uh, the ability to cut your, your cost by 50% if you just look yeah. for the cheapest option. But yeah. yeah, exactly. This goes back to Greg Maxwell's biggest worry for Bitcoin. Like, how could Bitcoin fail? It's simply apathy. People are just so apathetic. Yeah. They don't care. They're, they're like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's actually, for me, it's also a bit of a concern with CBDCs in general is that, you know, Bitcoiners are going to be the ones who are loudest against CBDCs. And in a lot of the public's eyes that don't even care about Bitcoin in the first place, they're just going to be like, oh, you guys are just worried, you know, that you're not going to get even richer because you invested early and now you're trying to defend your thing. Like, in a way, you could actually get some some Streisand effect. Yeah. Like it can get pretty weird there, I think, but yeah. I don't know. Remains to be seen. Like we have to not do too many. I told you so's. I think perhaps, <laughs> um, but like one of the other things about remittances that I think is really important to point out is that 79% of all the remittances, they go to low or middle income countries. So like people think like it's not low in terms of us, um, paychecks it's not like or, or in the middle or anything we're talking like less than ten thousand dollars in in gdp uh per person per capita so that, uh, yeah per capita uh, that gives you a bit of a perspective of that is much lower than what a u.s standard of a low income might be um but 79 percent goes to like so to countries that have that kind of average or like typically even lower than that and it's very similar to inflation where inflation tends to hit the poorest people the hardest like in a similar way here, a lot of these remittances, they go to the poorer countries and there, you know, all of these companies like the Western unions, et cetera, they make another, like they just tax like a large part of the GDP. There are some countries, I have some graphs in the report, uh, I guess I can pull one up where something like uh, 70 ish, uh, sorry, not 70, like 30% or so of all the GDP is just remittances. So imagine like your entire country, 30% of the GDP, you get another 6% tax on top of that that just goes to a financial institution. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, that was it India, Mexico were the two? Yeah, I'll just, yeah, those yeah. are the top ones. I'll just share my uh, screen here real quick. Logan's going to pull it up. Yep. So where you have the top 10 remittance receiving countries by volume, and again, it's in 2021, we'll probably get an update by 2025. But then in black, it shows like the, the volume that they've received. So India, 
2021 was by far the highest. Mexico as well, like over $50 billion. China, pretty similar. And for China, it's actually, you know, it's a really small percentage of GDP, which is the golden dots here, golden line, because they just have such a massive GDP as a country in general, and they have their capital controls and whatnot. So people don't really like to put their money into China. They'd rather get it out of there. But nonetheless, it's a really big country, so it adds up to a lot of volume. But then when you look at the countries that have the highest share of GDP uh, from remittances, it's like there's a lot of smaller ones like Tonga, Lebanon's not that small, I think. Uh, Tajikistan here, Kyrgyzstan, Jamaica, El Salvador as well, which is why you know Bitcoin is such a, a significant case there. And I can talk a little bit more about the data of like how much share of this has Bitcoin captured uh, later. Uh, so far, anyway, Guatemala, a really big one in volume and still, you know, like almost 20% of their entire GDP is from remittances there, just mostly from the US. So you can also, with the data sets, you can dive into like specific countries, like how much of this is coming from the US, etc. Um, and I think like towards the end of the report, I have some tables for that where you can look into it. Like, let's pull up a random one here. Um, like Guatemala here, you know, it's 91% from the US. So gives you a bit of an idea, you know, if you know, uh, kind of jumping ahead there towards the end, but to grow adoption, like could be super interesting to find Guatemalan communities in the US and just like have a talk, like get to know them, see what their problems are. Do they know people are sending money back home and how much are those paying, et cetera. And in a lot of cases, like those big corridors, they'll have pretty decent, or like decent, like relatively decent rates and fees that people are paying. So the need for Bitcoin may be lower from a remittance perspective, mm -hmm. but they probably do understand decently well that money is kind of broken and maybe uh, it's worth looking into some solutions. Yeah, this is so, fascinating because you can just look at the chart for anybody listening at home. Just looking at the country. Yeah. The uh, percentage of their economy is driven by remittances and where they're coming from. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's a ton of people moving abroad to help provide an income for their family back home. Mm -hmm. Like those people, they're going to understand that money is messed up. And it's, you know, it's not always due to inflation. Uh, there's, you know, there's just lots of where's the economic opportunity. If you go work abroad and you earn X times the income that you could, uh, could earn uh, to it back home, then some people will do that, obviously. Yeah, but, I'm uh, just looking at like the top one on this chart, Haiti. makes a lot of sense. Haitians. Yeah. Not a lot of opportunity yeah. there, so they moved to the U.S., the Dominican Republic, and Chile. That's where all the remittances are coming from. Yeah, and then as you go up the list, it's like very often it's the U.S. That's obviously the biggest one, uh, and you can kind of also see that in the sort of the graph by total sending volume. It's like the U.S. is massive there. So two hundred billion dollars was sent in twenty twenty one from the U.S. in remittances, but again, like massive, it's relatively speaking because I mentioned in the beginning the global remittance volume. It's like 156 trillion dollars or so. So like 200 billion dollars out of that is relatively small, but you know, to people, this is very meaningful. Um, what also, what's also interesting, I think that stands out is like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates here that have a pretty big percent of their GDP is sent in remittances. So it's like for Saudi Arabia, it's like 6% or so UAE, something like 11%. So that's a lot of money that's just flowing out of the country to a lot of the families in, you know, like India, Pakistan, and whatnot, uh, that are like building those countries up and that are the foreign workers there. So uh, 
also just interesting stuff that is a bit further removed from like especially i guess like the, the twitter the nostr crowd the, the conference crowd the typical people that you speak to everywhere uh you know they're not between these types of corridors and in these kinds of locations um what do you mean by so that that's, like people aren't uh yeah like, well, I don't know, like what's going many, on in the middle many, east yeah for example like how many people that are into bitcoin have you spoken to that are based out of saudi arabia for example that could tell you a really accurate or like an interesting perspective on how is Bitcoin regarded there and like what are the differences with the US, for example. That's just for a lot of people that's less prevalent. They don't have someone like that in their life who could give that kind of perspective or insights. Mm -hmm. So just like generally Bitcoin adoption is lower in some places. And as a result, sometimes we miss some perspective from these places to figure out like what's big what is sentiment around Bitcoin over there. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And it seems like, I mean, looking at this chart, look at the percentage of um, remittances as a percentage of GDP in Saudi Arabia and the UAE. It's like, hey, maybe we should be over there trying to figure it out. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And maybe like the volume one I hadn't shown earlier, but just to like reiterate like how little this is of all the global volume. So the black one here is business to business. So that's just been growing. Like that's also crazy to have a bit of insight into how much has the cross-border payments volume been growing over the past years. It's like in 2018, it was somewhere around like 125-ish, 127 or so trillion dollars. And then by 2021, oh, sorry, 2022, we're like at 156 trillion dollars. So that's pretty big increase there, like 30 trillion dollars just over those years. And then I immediately wonder like, okay, how much of that is due to inflation? You know, mm -hmm. like it, it's great mm -hmm. that the number goes up because we're all just trading more internationally and whatnot. But if it's all being measured in dollars, then like, yeah, it's not hard to keep going up there. Um, but yeah, you can see like the little bars at the top here, it's like barely visible, like $0.8 trillion in remittances in 2022. So that's just $800 billion of which like 600 plus is between those lower income countries. So, uh, yeah. gives you some perspective there. It's up by 30 trillion, 120 to 156 but is that 156 150 i'm sorry my eyes are yeah it's so it's 150 b2b 150.7 150. but then with the others one added on top you get to 155.9 yeah yeah but what's the purchasing power of that 156 yeah. trillion yeah, exactly compared to 2019 so that's, that that's, that's where I have some questions. And again, like you can very clearly tell with a lot of the numbers, it's like, these are estimations, it's extrapolated based on smaller data sets and whatnot. So, you know, the real numbers, they're probably going to vary a good bit, mm -hmm. but like, this is the best you're going to get out of a, a lot of uh, reports and research out there. Yeah. And so this is the state of global cross-border payments by volume. And obviously we dove yes, into sir. some granularity with the individual countries. What is the state of Bitcoin? Where are we with Bitcoin yeah. adoption? Let's dive into that. I'll uh, knock off the screen share here. Um, what I thought was interesting, like I mentioned in the beginning a bit, you know, in, in Bitcoin, a lot of people talk about, you know, it's like hundred plus million or hundreds of millions of users in general. And I figured, okay, what can we actually sort of find and reverse engineer or verify in some ways ourselves? And uh, you're probably familiar with Glassnode. Mm -hmm. 
So they, for, for people who don't know Glassnode, they make all these graphs around on-chain data that they can find like how many, you know, people are holding Bitcoin, how much Bitcoin is held by exchanges, um, or, or rather how many people in certain wealth brackets are holding Bitcoin. Like they do all of these distinctions and whatnot. Uh, they track miners, they just track everything they can see on-chain. And they did some research that they first did back in 2020, where they tried to figure out how many active entities are there in the blockchain. So how many different actors are there transacting on the blockchain itself? And they can't notice for certain. All they can do is like uh, just data analysis and figure out like which what's actually an individual entity or what is you know a bunch of people mixing their money, etc. What is just a really big exchange that's receiving a lot of transactions from people. But they tried to sort of map this out, and uh, I don't exactly recall back in 2020. I think the number was something somewhere in the low 20 million of active mm -hmm. entities. So that is not the same as users. Um, but then by 2023, it was 32.9 million active entities on the blockchain. And to give some context, there, there were about 44 million uh, uh, UTXOs with a usable balance, so not with dust on them. Um, so that like. For me, that was like the first where I was like, hold on, that doesn't make sense. That's it. That would mean that the average entity has something like 1.2 or 1.3 addresses or something like that. But if you think of the average Bitcoin user, it's like, well, they, they have dozens of addresses. They have different wallets. They have their hardware wallets. Uh, like to me, that intuitively didn't make sense. So I really started digging and trying to figure out like, how is that possible? Uh, like there's got to be something wrong here. Like could they be wrong in their analysis? And then I quickly started realizing with the entities as well is that there's like there's there's different ways of of looking at those entities. And you quickly realize that especially the exchanges they hold, you know, that's just one entity in a way, and they hold a large number of Bitcoin in general. It's, uh, trying to recall, I think it's something like. Uh, two point three million or so. So that is yeah. like, more than ten percent. Sounds large, but it's yeah, something like that. Um, but it's a pretty meaningful number that they have there. And there was some, there were some polls, some like surveys, etc., to try to figure out how many people are storing Bitcoin on exchanges. And that was pulled somewhere around seventy percent. So if seventy percent of the users are just putting all their money at some exchange, then that leaves quite a lot of addresses for sort of everyone else to be using. Uh, mm -hmm. And if a lot of people like you have some kind of custodial wallet, you know, they do have a wallet, but it's custodial. And then ultimately they don't have their own address either. So once you start looking into that, it makes a little bit more sense. But to this day, I still question some of that data. But then I was wondering like, well, 32.9 million entities, you have a bunch of big exchanges, but Glassnode also said like, we don't know how many, exchange, uh, how many users those exchanges have that are actually holding Bitcoin there. So that is not disclosed. And then you start diving into the reports from Coinbase and Binance to figure out how many active users do they say they have versus how many accounts are there. Um, then I figured like, well, actually, if we know publicly verifiable on the blockchain, how much Bitcoin do they hold that is constantly being tracked? And then how many active users do they say they have? Because if we have some kind of estimation of those two, then you could potentially reverse engineer how many people are actually holding Bitcoin on those exchanges on average. Because um, if you know, like in, in the case of, uh, I think Coinbase, it's like under 10 million active users per month. 
which an active user, they call like someone who's actually doing some kind of transaction or some kind of interaction with a platform. Uh, I think it was somewhere around eight or nine million at this point. And then Binance, I kind of derived from a previous report of theirs, um, which is like to your question earlier, how do you get the data? I looked at Binance in, I think it was 2021 or 2022, and they had something like 29 million monthly active users. I, I used like Wayback Machine to figure out what was their monthly um, traffic volume on the site at the time, and then compared it to now, and you could see a pretty clear like 30% drop there. So if you take that off to 29 million, then you might arrive somewhere around 20-ish million active users per month. So sometimes you have to get a bit creative there and just give the necessary caveats to people like, you know, this is not exact, these are estimations, but that's reasonably accurate. And if you think about it, like Coinbase might have 8 million-ish or so, you compare the traffic on Coinbase, the Binance as well, that almost lines up perfectly to how many users they might potentially have. So then you have like a somewhat clear indication of, okay, how many people are actually using this thing? Uh, but then you still have the question of, okay, are the active users also the ones holding Bitcoin? Or are there just a lot of people who created an account two years ago, bought $50 worth and never touched it again? And without the exchange actually communicating anything about this and saying, okay, out of our users, you know, like X percent hasn't logged in over the past year, but they hold this much of the Bitcoin. They don't report that, obviously, and they probably never will or even disclose any Bitcoin specific data in general, because their narrative, their focus is of crypto. Mm -hmm. They don't report on, that's one of the issues with the big exchanges. They never report on Bitcoin activity. They report on crypto activity because they want that narrative to be top of mind and not like kind of lift Bitcoin above the rest in a way, even though it's often, you know, the majority of their trading volume, the majority of their revenue, they, uh, yeah, they don't, they don't really do that. So then you have to think like, okay, what, you know, what if, what if all of the people who are holding Bitcoin on such a big exchange, what if they're the active ones? Like if you take that kind of number, then how many users might there be holding Bitcoin on an exchange? And what if it's only half of them? So what if only half of the active users are holding the Bitcoin supply and the other half is held by people who haven't logged in in over a month. So you, you kind of get a range there of what, you know, how many users might that exchange have. If you divide the 2.3 million um, Bitcoin held on exchanges by the number of potential users in total, and then you get to somewhere around 48.8 uh, to 97.5 million people holding Bitcoin on an exchange. That's kind of that range between the 50% and 100%. And some people might say it's not 50%, Sam, it's, you know, it's only 20% is held by people who are active on the exchanges and the 80% by people who haven't logged in forever. Like, okay, fine, then you can update the estimation, but then there's going to be even less holders likely. So I don't think that's necessarily realistic. Um, but then you get into some kind of insight there. Okay, let's say between 50 and 100 million people holding Bitcoin on an exchange. Assuming, of course, that those exchanges aren't insolvent and that people think they're holding Bitcoin in exchange, but they aren't. Um, so that's, you know, again, like you're building a lot of assumptions on top of each other. And I'm just clear about this in the report. Like it's just an approach to try to get an estimation that doesn't just do a public survey, which, you know, people who are younger and more tech savvy are more likely to respond to. And as a result, you get just higher adoption numbers in general. Um, or you get people who say, yes, I have used crypto in 2021. And then it's like they bought some some nonsense coin once, left it in some wallet that they lost the access to. And like you can derive Bitcoin users from that. It doesn't make sense. Uh, but that is often how it gets done today. Um, 
so I, I looked into that and you get like, okay, like 50 to 100 million users on exchanges. But then the question is, a lot of people, they hold Bitcoin on exchange. They also hold it off an exchange in their own wallet, some of them hardware wallets. And then you have to dig a bit more. Okay, how many people own what hardware wallets? And then on, I think it was on what Bitcoin did, uh, the Ledger CEO, when they had that episode where they were talking about the Ledger Recover thing with... With, uh, with Matt and Rodolfo. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think you mentioned in there, and I just checked afterwards as well, but there's like less than 10 million hardware wallets that have been sold. Something like 6 million by Ledger, 2 million by Trezor or so, and then 1 million collectively by the others or something like that. So it's under 10 million. And then you have to and think of like, I think I have like seven or eight hardware wallets. Exactly. Right. So then you've got it down further and then you start realizing like, okay, actually out of those 32.9 million entities that Glassnode feels pretty comfortable with, there's going to be, you know, less than a quarter that actually does self-custody on a hardware wallet. And then you start pulling in all kinds of surveys, like, is this accurate? Uh, you know, how much do they say that people are holding in cold storage? How many are using hot wallets? And that's a pretty big percentage, apparently like 80% or so. So 70% hold it on exchange, 80% also hold it in their own kind of wallet, but mobile wallet, be, something like that. Yeah, but it'll, or, or desktop and they, but mostly mobile and that'll often be custodial as well. So then you start to figure out like actually out of that 50 to 100 million, like I still need to cut off a slice here of people that are both on an exchange and off an exchange if we want to get the total number of people holding Bitcoin. So it's not likely that it's actually 100 million. Like it, it could be because you do like you have to add it up to the 32.9. So you could say it's up to 132.9 million users, but then probably you take a pretty big slice out from people who are just on both. So likely it's just somewhere around 80-ish million or so is, is my best uh, approximation so far. Yeah. So it gives a bit of perspective. Yeah, you, you had to imagine, I mean, you don't want to double count people. There's definitely people. Yeah. Because and, and, and you think of the flow, just... like the river flow, you, you upload you DC on river, and now you guys have auto withdrawal. Like that would be a monthly active user for you, somebody engaged in that. But then they also be sending to like a new address every time, hopefully. Um, they'd have to go in and reset it. But um, so they would be double counted in most people's data as like yeah. two different holders, but it's really one person. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's like, that stuff's hard. I'm not smart enough to do like a super deep analysis on this. Maybe you know, if, if the guys at Glassnet, if they put their mind to it, they could get some kind of closer approximation. But I do think the model, like the sort of the approach itself has some merits as, you know, we, we don't know exactly from the exchanges themselves, what is the actual data? How many people do we have that are holding Bitcoin? They won't disclose that. But still, just by looking at how much Bitcoin are they holding, even looking at the average address, if there's 44.4 million with usable balances, like what's the average Bitcoin held on an address? Like how does this map out, et cetera? You can get to some kind of estimation. Um, so that's, yeah, that's been pretty insightful for me to get a bit of a feel of how does that work? Like how can you sort of evaluate the industry there? Yeah, so if it's 80 million people is your estimate, that's what 0.1%, 0.1 or 0.01, 0.1. Percent of the global population. Somewhere around there, yeah. Yeah. Very small penetration. Yeah. And then people always like to say, we're still early. And it's like, well, like, in a way we are. On the so other hand, 15 you know, it's years. Been, yeah, it's been a while. Like, how, how many years are you going to keep saying that? Just waiting for people to get it. Like, they're if they're smart and they didn't show interest so far, then that's kind of my whole point of 
what, what we were touching on earlier with the education, like maybe you need to reevaluate how you're educating people. And because I hear this so much from people where they go like, oh, uh, I'm just putting off my family and friends when I talk about Bitcoin or like they're not interested. I can't get them interested. And it's like, well, are you trying to sort of convert them? Are you trying to orange pill them? I'm not a not really a fan of that term because it sounds like you're trying to do something to someone. Whereas it's like, are you just trying to have a conversation with this person and, and understand like, what are their, their hopes and dreams? Like, what are they trying to accomplish in life? And like, you know, is money in some way giving them obstacles to do that? Like, is it, which it often is like, are they struggling to save? Are they struggling to, to send money to their family back home? Like what, what is it that they're struggling with? In what way is money broken for them in their life? without getting super philosophical with them about it, but it's like getting a bit of a read on them. And what I often like to do, uh, going on a bit of a tangent there, but instead of giving a pitch about Bitcoin when someone's interested, I just ask them, like, what do you know about it? Mm-hmm. And they just start talking and you hear like all of the usual headlines that you read in the news, like it uses a lot of energy. Uh, it's, you know, like it's expensive. There's lots of scammers, all of these things that you hear. But then you get an idea immediately of what is their perspective of it it gives you time to figure out like what's an interesting topic or opening to get going about it rather than you come at them with something that you're super passionate about like maybe you're you love lightning and you're talking about we could do micropayments they're like okay but like i've never done a micropayment in my life what do you know about http 402 yeah super cool bro (laughs) right like so, so just having a conversation with a person and seeing like where are they coming from what might be the intersection where you know, it's maybe interesting to talk about Bitcoin. Uh, I find that such a more like successful approach for me personally anyway, than coming at them with some kind of like, you know, financial system is screwed. Inflation is ridiculous. Like we're all going to be screwed if we don't switch to Bitcoin, but that's going to be the solution is going to fix everything. People just go like, I have no idea what that's you're talking fine. about, man. Like, please don't do this no, to me. I really, that that's the, um, the most successful tactic and again this is what i've adopted in recent years is asking the questions okay what do you know what do you want to know and even even when they ask me like oh can you explain bitcoin to me or something like well what do you i still ask them like what do you know about it already because then it's also easier to start talking about it and it forces them to think a bit about yeah actually what do i know rather than you have to pitch it to me and then i have to be convinced it sets a very different dynamic yeah Um, yeah Anyway, Bitcoin adoption. Um, I think one other thing that I also find interesting, like in a payments context of Bitcoin adoption, because that's something I was also curious about. Uh, coming back to Binance, they had a report in 2021 where they estimated that about 11% of the users actually use Bitcoin for payments. So that's like, you know, it's a pretty low percentage. And you can ask a lot of questions around like, why is it that low? Why isn't it higher? And you know, in the US, there's a really obvious answer. It's just that the taxable event thing is just uh, for a lot of people, it's just a big hurdle to even bother thinking about it. Um, and lots of, you know, chicken and egg problem of the for merchants tend to be eager if they really get it. Um, but then people like to hold because they're expecting to make a lot of money. So that's historically been challenging. But it like, I think in general, lightning adoption growing and people getting a sense for like just the UX improving, et cetera, and people understanding this, you know, this could actually work at a larger scale. It has certainly improved over the years. Uh, there's been a lot of efforts by 
sort of e-commerce players, payments players, et cetera, to keep improving this space. Uh, but it's hard. It's like an uphill battle. I don't envy people in those businesses to try to get Bitcoin e-commerce going in general. It's uh, that's a tough fight, I think. Yeah. But, you know, like it's, yeah, as a user, it also has to start with yourself. Like, do you, you know, do you often make payments in Bitcoin? You will, I will, but just a lot of other people that are kind of at the sidelines here, like I'll put a little bit of money into it. Then they already feel like, oh, I've already gone through the effort to buy a bit of Bitcoin. Like, I'm not going to spend it and I have to buy it again. Like, I'm not going to deal with that. I'll just use my, my card, my Apple well, Pay, whatever. Well, that, well, Apple Pay was the big one I was going to bring up. You're competing with <laughs> Apple Pay, which yeah. is like click, click, done, paid, like that UX. Yeah, that's a rough one. It's very hard to compete with. Yeah. And then you get the, you know, you get fancy things like a ring that you could do like mm -hmm. uh, NFC payments with and like people will come up with cool stuff, but still, yeah, it's, it's hard to compete with for sure. Yeah. So what, uh, God. Oh no, I think you were going to ask the question like what? Yeah. Yeah. What is the state of the lightning? Cause in the report, you don't only mention the lightning network, you mentioned, uh, Fediman's too, is something that's sort of emerging. As well. Yeah, like so. So looking at like what's happening with Bitcoin and cross-border payments, and specifically, kind of like segueing in there, um, I think like at first I just did a comparison, like a model of what do Bitcoin cross-border payments look like, and I can like, share my screen to pull it up. As it's just that, like you know, for people in Bitcoin, it's not new, but it's also good to keep in mind that you know the models and the things in there they're not always for Bitcoiners, so to speak. Like there's you know, there's people who look at this from an outside perspective and are like, all right, what, you know, what's, what's going on in this industry? How does this thing work? Mm -hmm. So like, there's often these, um, these kinds of models from the traditional industry where they talk about the typical cross-border payments structure. And for people who are listening, it's a model that shows the flow from users to the front end that they interact with to then use a certain backend mechanism to the international transfer which then arrives again at another service provider with another user. And that's often where the correspondent banking network comes up, Swift, as you've heard about plenty of times probably. And then there's, you know, there will be other kinds of solutions and technology providers and fintechs that integrate with these things to, to make it easier. But there's a lot of these models, but they're, you know, people haven't really bothered to make them about Bitcoin too much. So I made a similar one, Bitcoin's cross-border payments flow where you know, you have kind of a distinct thing here is that you have an acquisition phase. Like, how do you get your Bitcoin? You can earn it or you can buy it at various places. You can have it in like a custodial or a non-custodial wallet. That doesn't matter a ton for the actual flow itself. Um, you can have a node that it gets sent to. It can be your own or it can be the node of a third party, which is then often an exchange, for example, or a service. And it can get sent over the Bitcoin blockchain, which is traditionally what we've done. And that's how anyone outside of the industry thinks that, you know, Bitcoin payments are sent. They are sent through blockchain with the big air quotes, they always call it. But, you know, they've never heard about the Lightning Network. Probably they don't understand what's happening there. They also don't understand the new innovations that are coming up in eCash that are just using a different kind of model to transfer the Bitcoin between people. Um, so this helps to sort of visualize it for, you know, you might have consultants at various firms that pull out such an image to sort of talk about their, you know, their, the comparison between this and the traditional model. Um, so just putting this into 
uh, a visual there. But then when I started talking about it's indeed like Fedi's model, et cetera, uh, and how Bitcoin could potentially compete with fintechs, because actually one thing I hadn't touched on there is what fintechs do really great. If you look back at this traditional model here, is they set up some kind of, it's almost like an accounting trick. They have an account at one bank in one country, and then they have an account at another bank in another country. You pay them in one country and they pay out the user in the other country. And then you get that kind of feeling of, oh, you know, this is an instant payment or it's within an hour or something, or it's really fast. But in the background, the money still moves really slowly. It's still just, you know, taking the same days as it would for those consumers to directly do the transactions with each other. Maybe to get some kind of a, a fast lane business uh, treatment, I have no idea. Probably not if they're competing with the banks, but like they just make it look as if it's better. And for the consumer, that's good enough. So from their perspective, you know, if they're if they're using a fintech service like Wise or something, and they can just instantly send money to someone else in the world for a pretty low fee, like they don't have to worry about the back end shenanigans here. Yeah. And what's interesting is that with the Lightning Network, actually a similar model is now emerging where we're just learning from how the fintechs do it. Um, well, that's what like in the fintechs they are able to create this almost instant user experience because they're not going to charge back themselves. So they're willing to yeah. quote unquote yep, take exactly. on that. There is no risk they're taking on really. It's just a waiting period yeah. that. So what you're seeing in Bitcoin is like, it's a custodial flow that's important to understand. But you know, the question is that, that I think a lot of people have to ask themselves, like if those payments worked over Bitcoin, Yes, they're in a custodial kind of way, but it helps a lot of people, especially the poorest around in the world, to save money that they are otherwise spending on high remittance fees. Is that still, you know, Bitcoin being used for good? And I would argue, yes, it is. Uh, that doesn't mean that those people are, you know, holding any Bitcoin in self-custody. And in fact, in a lot of cases, they won't understand anything about Bitcoin. And that's really the beauty of this model, I think, because what happens here is that you have someone who wants to send their local currency to an exchange or a broker, just some kind of front end that will then use the Lightning Network as a back end to send it to another service in another country. And that service will then just pay out the person in their local currency. So that is what Strike has been pushing for together with a bunch of other exchanges that have joined in on this network. And I made a map in here somewhere. Let me just scroll over to it over here. I think it has like expanded ever since. But this map gives you a bit of an idea of like where they base. Like you have Strike in the US here, you have Coin Corner on Isle of Man, uh, you have GetBit in Vietnam, Pouch in the Philippines, you have BitNob in Nigeria that services a whole range of countries. Uh, BIPA in Brazil here is connected with Zebedee and Pouch as well. So you just start seeing these networks emerge where these exchanges use Lightning to transfer like between them to just settle their differences uh, where Bitcoin is used as their sort of reserve asset in that case. And, you know, Hal Finney was talking about this back in 2010, 2011 or something. We're saying like, ultimately, people probably won't be able to have their own UTXO, but we're going to see the emergence of Bitcoin banks that just use Bitcoin as a backend settlement uh, system. And then a lot of the users, they may not even need to understand anything about Bitcoin because all they see, this company's marketing to me, they're saying, you know, you can send your dollars to Guatemala or something for this little fee. And they'll just receive it within a moment in their wallet there, and then they can extract it to their you know, their mobile money account or their bank account or something, and that's it. So, like this is you know this is just 
in a way it's learning from what the fintechs are doing. But in this case, we're applying it to Bitcoin uh, and there's a custodial aspect in a sense that, you know, you're trusting that service to briefly hold your money, your, your fiat currency, but, you know, ultimately for them, it's also a matter of reputation and you can withdraw your money from that account. But what you'll likely see is that a lot of those companies involved in this, they might become banks themselves in the future as people start feeling like, well, you know, if I could pay from that service and, you know, do e-commerce, do all kinds of transactions, then why would I take my money off of those accounts? So that's how you'll see a lot of people just become custodial users over time, where they just keep their money in those accounts or they keep a mix of currencies because their local currency is inflating. Um, so you're seeing that model emerge. It does have, you know, it has its challenges. It means that instead of the individual taking the sort of fluctuation risk that you have in holding Bitcoin, which a lot of like people like to talk about, oh, you know, everyone could use Bitcoin for remittances. Like, well, a lot of people just don't like the volatility. So they mm -hmm. use stable coins instead, especially in South America. It's hugely popular. Um, and that's just not something the individual wants to have to think about. Some will, you know, you might, you might feel okay about it, but you just have to accept probably that a lot of other people don't want that kind of risk. So what this model does is it puts that risk in the hands of a business, but the business, you know, like they're the ones holding the Bitcoin, it's on their balance sheet, but they just need enough liquidity uh, or not even if they use some kind of service provider, but uh, they just need to make sure that they're okay, that they're earning small enough fees to offset any kind of risk that they might have from Bitcoin price dropping. But, you know, they're, they're familiar with the space. They understand how it operates. They understand the long-term of it, and they're far better equipped to handle volatility risk than the individual user who might not understand anything about Bitcoin. So personally, I think it's, you know, it's a super interesting model that's emerging. It has its challenges because it's, you know, it fully depends on banking relations being proper. And, you know, if there's issues there uh, or if countries try to start working against Bitcoin, then, you know, the whole thing can pretty quickly unravel. Um, you know, if, if the whole choke point 2.0 thing just keeps getting pushed through and these exchanges are not allowed to send anything from the US anymore, then, you know, what can be done? There's not much that can be done. The model doesn't work then. But in the meantime, if it can help people, I think that's great to see. So uh, it's definitely something I wanted to highlight because there's a very interesting similarity to the way fintechs operate um, that we're now sort of replicating in the Bitcoin space. Well, you touched on the similarities. What is the core difference that makes it a superior product in your mind? Yeah, I think speed is one of the biggest ones. The <laughs> instant settlement also for those businesses involved, because even for a, you know, for a fintech, they still have to wait all of those days for the transactions to settle. It's a lot of capital that just isn't being used. Um, I think where both still have challenges and probably Bitcoin more so is in terms of liquidity because a lot of what you see when you dive into the traditional remittance market is that a lot of remittance flows are what they call unilateral so they're just like from mostly from one country to the other and there's like a struggle to um because that's i believe initially how wise emerged was literally just saying like okay if people send a certain amount of money from uh this bank in europe to this bank in the us and a certain amount of money in reverse then we could just cancel those two, two out against each other. And we never even have to move the money. We just add it all up at the end of the day. And then only a certain amount needs to be moved so that lowers our general risk. It frees up more capital to be used for other things. Um, but in, you know, in Bitcoin, like if you're sending Bitcoin from the US to 
Nigeria, for example, there will be a lot less Bitcoin that gets sent from Nigeria to the US. Mm -hmm. So then you have to start figuring out like, okay, where do we get the liquidity, uh, which they like, they have to use OTC desks for and whatnot. And there are certainly solutions, but there are also just lots of challenges in many places to make sure that they can get enough Bitcoin uh, for their local currency and that you're not just in a way subject to foreign exchange again in the background that increases the margin for these businesses to, to offer this model, which then kind of pulls their, the fee that they have to ask users up to pretty close to what traditional finance might, because then, yeah, like how much are you gaining ultimately? It'll be the most beneficial to countries where there are no alternatives and no better solutions. So for them, it's amazing, but for first world countries, perhaps the impact will be a bit smaller then, yeah. or might not even be there. So, uh, yeah, Still early. This is a yeah. it's an encouraging chart, though. Seeing all these connections. Yeah, it's it, it's good to see. And some people might point out. Uh, I think at Bitcoin Miami, Jack Mallers, he presented. You know, they were going to go live in, I think something like sixty plus countries. So you know, why are there only like ten ish here or something or fifteen? I don't know the exact number. And the the core difference here, I mentioned this in the report as well, is that. Uh, you know, there's no on and off ramp integration in those countries that they are still going to be adding. So people there can only have a Bitcoin balance in their, their wallet, but they, you know, they can't sell it for the local currency in there. So then it's not quite part of that model yet, but in time they'll find partners in all those places likely. And then the whole thing will just build out and, uh, keep growing and growing. So, uh, yeah, I'm definitely interested to see that. And like from River, like going back to why did we make the report? From River's perspective, we're also interested in it because we have our Lightning services and then, you know, we're looking to help companies onboard onto the Lightning network without having to run their own infrastructure. So from our perspective, it's also interesting to see this model grow and like what is the potential of it? Does it have long-term viability? And if so, then probably a lot of institutions and even traditional financial companies might want to join in on those networks. But, you know, they might not have the internal expertise or the, the resources to want to dedicate to something so new and they can just easily get started with uh, RLS. So, uh, no, it seems like the... it seems like there's been a validation of that model via the competition yeah. that's been erected. You have RLS, obviously a strike has an API, LightSpark is a market, you have Voltage, yeah. um, other providers. And it seems like... yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we run and operate our own node here at TFTC, but we've been in the space for a while. It's not easy. It does take quite a bit of yeah, absolutely. interactivity. Yeah, and absolutely. But you see, like, sort of without this model, a lot of people are like, well, you know, I want the non-custodial version. I want uh, Bitcoin to work non-custodial for everyone. If you make a comparison there, if, like if you compare Bitcoin's Lightning Network, which is the only thing you can fairly com compare to these other models, because the Bitcoin base layer, like it has historically worked for cross-border payments, but like at the moment, like if you look into the future, it's unlikely that most people will be using the base layer for payments. That's just kind of how everyone sees it, that it becomes more of a settlement layer and payments move to a different layer. So a lot of reports, especially in the traditional world, they like to compare Bitcoin on the base layer. They just say seven transactions per second. Ah, can't work. So I guess we just give it a, the lowest score in our report and just like ship it off. It's not important. So actually what they should be comparing is Bitcoin's lightning network. And then I made this distinction between like, what is the native speed 
with like if you send within the system itself without having to interface with the traditional financial world. And that's really like where Bitcoin and also stable coins lose their competitive advantage in terms of speed is you can very quickly send it between services. But then when you need to withdraw it from an exchange in a lot of places, you will often still wait a day or a couple of days before it's actually in your bank account or something. And that just makes it hard to do Bitcoin remittances today for you know, or just like digital cross-border payments today, like also for businesses, et cetera, or e-commerce, uh, payroll. There's just a delay there. And, you know, from the user perspective, you can say you can send money super fast around the world, but then actually you still need to wait a couple of days to get it in your bank account. And it's like, okay, why don't I just do the bank thing then if I'm mm-hmm. paying fees to, to buy the Bitcoin or to convert it or whatever. Um, so there's some challenges there. And I think looking through the whole thing, like comparing Bitcoin's Lightning Network to all these other systems, there's like, it's it's a matter of trade-offs in some ways. Like we're, we haven't quite figured out a, a way to sort of beat the other options in every single category, but there are some places and ways where there just aren't any alternatives. And that's really where Bitcoin shines the most. It's in countries where, you know, they don't have the options to use something like a Western Union because the closest office is an hour if they can hitch a ride on, ride on a bus or something uh, because they don't live in a city. And you start getting into all of these kinds of cases where people just don't have alternatives. They can't afford a credit card. Uh, they don't have a government issued ID to open a bank account. They don't, you could say, well, they get solved in time. And it's like, yeah, how much time? Like 10 years? Uh, in theory, they could get it now, maybe. Like there's so many open questions there, but I think in general, there's there's some interesting areas and I outlined those in the report as well where, uh, and I'll stop sharing for a bit, it's where Bitcoin makes sense for payments regardless of what anyone's opinion is. So you might be super, uh, you know, as a payments expert, as a someone who works for the government, you might be very opinionated on like, well, people aren't going to use Bitcoin for payments. Like, well, people are using Bitcoin for payments and it doesn't matter what your opinion is. Like it doesn't matter how if you have 20 years of experience in payments and say this is never going to work because they are still using it because they don't have a better option. And it's not because they are trying to do stuff that the government doesn't allow. Like very often there are just things that they need to buy where you know they might not have an alternative option to get it. Uh, coming back to e-commerce and you know all kinds of things like there's plenty of countries where you wouldn't be like, I don't know allowed to buy a certain kind of medication like medical marijuana or something like there's plenty of countries where that's illegal, but there's plenty of people and studies that have shown that there are benefits to it. So yeah, or those you, are the kinds of gray areas. So it's like, what, what do you want them to do? Yeah. Or you have the, um, which I would actually argue or not argue, I would assume is probably one of the, the bigger cross border payments, like peer to peer, especially is, individuals living in the United States from countries that are sanctioned by the United States trying to get money back. Yeah, that's, that is indeed a thing. Like, you know, it's, it's been pretty tricky to try to figure out like, what's, you know, what's the volume there. I've, I've also tried to look into this, like what's the volume between these types of countries or, and yeah, that's just super hard to track to, to get a bit of an idea of what is happening there, which you definitely saw, like some people have been tracking this with the, uh, Russia, Ukraine situation, like how many more, how much more Bitcoin activity is there uh, in Russia around sanctions and whatnot and uh, that were like internationally levied. 
Um, so people do try to look into it, but I find in general, like the data often isn't conclusive enough or not, not really detailed enough or not really meaningful enough to really draw good conclusions from without having far more context. And then I just opt to not like go too deep into it or not even include it if it's, if there's no way to validate it or no real way to have a good insight there. But in many cases, like even if there are sanctions, it's often still, you know, it's at a, it's at a relatively small scale. There will be increases, but you know, still relatively small uh, in general. And it's the same with inflation. Like you see inflation rise in a certain country. Turkey, I think is a good example where inflation has been pretty aggressive for years and years now. And you do really actually see that, you know, Bitcoin adoption in general has been rising faster there. Um, which is like, I have a bunch of graphs on this too, kind of looking into what are the main countries in terms of uh, search volume and just interest in Bitcoin in general. Yeah, it's uh, fascinating. You certainly yeah. see. Sadly, yeah. Like, yeah, let's pull it up because it is fascinating how it evolves. Yeah, sure. Uh, Over the years. <clears throat> yeah, in Turkey. I always do this. I, I turn off the screen share and then I think of the next thing to share and then. You get well, it back Turkey just hit what? They just hit their interest rates up to like 90% or something like that. Something That's crazy. Insane. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so this is a, a comparison of Google search traffic over time and the Bitcoin price, which is like over the years kind of tracked each other uh, pretty well. So you see like generally when there's been a peak in the Bitcoin price, this is like exponential, uh, sorry, logarithmic you see like the peaks kind of happen at the same time. So we made the joke, like as long as people just keep searching for Bitcoin and Google, then the price will go up. Uh, it's not really how it works, obviously. But um, uh, we were just looking at what, like what's the distribution of Bitcoin adoption. So what's important for people to understand about Google search traffic is that it is like, uh, like Google Trends, I mean, sorry, is that you have a difference between absolute numbers and then over here, you have relative numbers. So when you search Google Trends, you, you get to see this. So you get to see Nigeria as the country and El Salvador, those two are the countries with the most search volume is like how a lot of people interpreted it. But then when you think about it, like El Salvador is like a couple million people living there. Like how could it possibly have more search volume than the US, which is not even in the top 10 here? How does that make sense? So then it's good to understand how Google search works. So what it actually does is it looks at how many how many Google queries were there in total in this area or in this time frame for this specific keyword, and then what share of that was about Bitcoin in this case, or what share of it was about bicycles or cars or whatever, and then the country that has the highest relative share there of the total search volume that gets the score one hundred, and then everything else is scaled based off of that. So you can basically read this as. Someone in, let's say, Slovenia or South Africa here, they are about half as likely to be Googling about Bitcoin if they're Googling than someone in Nigeria or El Salvador. So that gives you a bit more of a perspective of where is Bitcoin a bit more top of mind? Where are, like on a per capita basis, not quite it, it's like on a per query basis, are people just more often searching about Bitcoin? So this gives a different perspective than just looking at the absolute graph here or the absolute overview is how many people per month are searching for Bitcoin. And in the US, that's estimated to be about 1.9 million. Could be that it's more or less like these are, this is by RFs or HREFs, uh, which has a lot of website analysis and whatnot. So they get estimations of this. And then you see Brazil, second there, 1.2 million. 
Turkey, 1.1 million. Germany, almost 800,000. So like those are obviously, you know, they're countries with much bigger populations than El Salvador. Nigeria, obviously an outlier there as it has like, I think 200 million 200 plus million, inhabitants. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it gives you a bit of an idea of like, you know, where is almost someone more likely to be a Bitcoiner than somewhere else, like in, in terms of average search interest. So it gives a bit of an idea and, and a very different perspective. And I also made this graph here, which kind of maps that out over time. Like might yeah, be hard the to see I was screen share here. Yeah. But uh, it kind of shows how that has fluctuated over the years, how some countries have been in the top 10 for a long time. So people are just consistently searching more there. And I tried to do a bit of a breakdown of, you know, why is that the case? Like why are, for example, the Netherlands, Switzerland, uh, Austria, Germany, et cetera, why, are, why have those more often been in the top 10 historically? And very often it's like they have strong local exchanges that, you know, do a lot of education there that have a lot of stuff in the local language. So people are just more likely to be engaged. There's a whole thing of who has the most disposable income plays a big role too uh, in this adoption in general. So there's a couple of reasons like that why some of them tend to hang in there, but typically it's, you know, it's a mix of reasons. It, it'll be high inflation, you know, just messed up local currencies uh, and some other former things that I mentioned. So uh, it's a bunch of uh, interesting insights in there, I think. Yeah. There's no, like what I didn't try to figure out, like, is it, you know, is there some kind of ideal mix of factors? If, is there some, you know, if we, if we get these components going, then that's definitely a winning model and we can implement this everywhere. And it's not that simple. You just sprinkle sprinkle of high yeah. inflation, a little bit of uh, bank account freezing, yeah, some bank runs, then boom. Some more expose, uh, disposable income. Yeah. Now, it is fascinating Instead. how it evolves over the years, too. And it's very, that's one of the things Bitcoiners do say, and I do believe is like, I'm not going to want Bitcoin until you need it. And that's probably why you see in places like Lebanon, Turkey, that trends are increasing Nigeria, obviously, with their attempt to go to the CBDC, um, yeah, El Salvador, it's a legal tender. It's sort of um, yeah. the yeah, issue is big role. being forced down there. Um, so how do we how do we turn this Venn diagram into a circle that is just Bitcoin? Yeah, that's, that's kind of like how I'd like to see it. I thought about making like a GIF where it just eats it up, but... Um, yeah, that's, that's going to be an interesting one. Maybe before we get into that, there's one more thing I wanted to touch on, which I thought was pretty interesting is, um, it's about B2C. So one thing that we touched on a bit was payroll. If you actually look at payroll in Bitcoin, like that to me is one of the most impressive things so far where, you know, e-commerce is a really big chicken and egg problem, but in payroll, if you look at a provider like bit, uh, bit wage, they have like really i think like you know i i don't know them i don't i don't have any personal relations there but if you look at the product that they've built where people can literally get paid out in the mix of currencies that they want so you could say like i want 20 percent of my paycheck and bitcoin and i want 80 percent of fiat currency or something like you can do that and you don't even need to onboard your your uh your, your employer yeah. yeah your company like they, they don't need to be involved you could just set up some kind of bank account, like a generated bank account or something with Bitwage, I believe, and then they just forward that payment to you. Um, 
So the fact that you're able to do that, like it just solves the consumer problems of, I don't want my full paycheck to be in Bitcoin, I only want part of it. And my employer is never going to want this. So uh, like I can't use it or something like they've solved essentially a bunch of the hard problems there, I think. And as a result, like all that's really needed there is just more education. And if you look at their numbers, it's sort of like, it's just growing over the years, uh, just because there's more people that get educated on Bitcoin in general and then say, okay, I want part of my paycheck in this. So that's actually like, I think an interesting segment where sort of for me, like I knew this from the early years that they, I don't believe they had both of those benefits yet where you could do the exact mix that you wanted and your employer didn't need to be integrated. I think the latter was not there yet, but now that it is, it's like, what's, what's your excuse almost to, to, to not do it. So it's for a lot of people, it's just education or they don't want their employer to know like exactly how much Bitcoin they're earning or whatever. Like there can be all kinds of reason and uh, totally respect those. But I thought it was interesting to see how out of all the segments, that's one where I just don't see what the hard problems left are. Whereas all the other segments like B2B, you have so many stakeholders that need to be convinced to do Bitcoin. In uh, e-commerce, it's like, well, people don't really like spending Bitcoin yet and you have the taxable event thing. In remittances, still complicated and you know not without cost because you still have that last mile that adds fees and especially in lots of countries if you want to cash it out at some mobile uh money market or some you know some western union office or whatever you still end up paying the fee there um but like actually b2c like kind of solve just need a lot of education there so i, I felt like that was a pretty interesting like for me at least a pretty interesting re revelation compared to the other segments where it's like all right this is actually you know pretty pretty solid pretty well done um, so worth a call out, I think. Shout out to Bitwage. Yeah. Get it done. Yeah. And others too, like Strike's got it, Cash App's got it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's becoming more popular. Yeah, for sure. And I think one other insight that I found was very relevant in terms of like, you know, who actually benefits from Bitcoin payments? Because I was talking earlier, where do people not have any alternatives? And I was talking to Alex Gladstein. And he said, like, when we pay out our grants in Bitcoin to people, we're not screwed by sort of the fixed exchange rates that happen there, where you want to send money to a country, but they use a fixed exchange rate. And then instead of sort of donating a bunch of money to a nonprofit, they just instantly receive like 20 or 30 percent less because of the fixed exchange rate. Like that is killing for a lot of businesses internationally and for a lot of nonprofits, et cetera, because you just get another massive haircut just because the government says this is the exchange rate and this must be enforced. Um, so that's been pretty interesting to look into as well, like how, you know, how Bitcoin can help in general, a lot of places where black markets have emerged because of fixed exchange rates. That's, it does play a big role there, but people are a bit like, you know, they're still apprehensive or slower to catch on. Um, but there's definitely a lot of potential there. And, and what's interesting is that in the, um, in the report, I kind of challenged the European Central Bank because they said like Bitcoin is the least likely holy grail of cross-border payments, so to speak. But they just had like two misconceptions about it that like it uses too much energy so it couldn't process all of these transactions, uh, which is like remarkable that someone, you know, in such a prominent role would make that claim and just not really get it. Uh, they said that Bitcoin's comparative advantages like fully rely on uh, regulatory gaps that will all be closed, but they're... You know, they're not looking at, you know, all kinds of advantages, like it's helping people that just don't have another option. They just look at it from the perspective of, you know, all those black markets will eventually disappear and 
any kind of use cases that Bitcoin has where money can be sent, they'll all be closed off and we'll use CBDCs or something. That's kind of how they see it. Yeah, if we've learned um, a lesson from history, black markets disappear. Uh, they, uh, they just go away. Yeah, magically. If you, if because the government does a great job and there's no more need. Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, that happens. So yeah. how, do we, how um, do we compress the Venn diagram? Yeah, like in order to figure that out, I was kind of looking at, you know, out of those four segments that we've talked about, the B2B, B2C, C2B, C2C, like where, where can we most quickly kind of get traction? What is working? Like, where do you, I think it's like this thesis of Mark Andreessen, where he was saying, like, if you start some kind of network or app or whatever thing, you're struggling with the chicken and egg problem. Like, how should you do it? You focus on a niche, like you go into a specific kind of thing where you just get traction, where it's working well, and then it grows from there and it starts expanding to lots of people. And that's what you see with Noster, which starts with the niche of Bitcoiners that understand it. And then maybe next up, it's, you know, a crowd that's very uh, focused on privacy, and then it just starts growing and growing from there. So like what's already going well in remittances, uh, I think like an interesting data point that I shared in the report was from the... I think like the vice president of El Salvador's central bank, which was like interesting that a number came from him, but uh, he shared that in the first half of 2022, uh, roughly $52 million in remittance volume was sent through the Chivo app. And I did the math there to figure it out. And it's about 1.6% of all the remittance volume in El Salvador. So you could call it 1.6% adoption at a relatively early stage. And then a lot of people might be like, oh, you know, that's not much. It's like, hell yeah, it is much. Like, mm-hmm. You think people who have to send money back home, that they're going to trust some new system that they've never used to get money to their family, which is absolutely critical. If you're already at 1.6%, that is a really meaningful number. Like I was actually quite wowed by the number there. Um, obviously, you know, we don't have a way to verify it. That was his statement there, but um, nonetheless, I think like, that's super interesting to see where people actually feel a need for using this. And, uh, you know, there's some kind of lasting impact because this was, I don't know how long that was after the announcement or where they switched over. That was like September, 2021 or something. Yeah. I think it was like July or September of 2021. So it was just a year in. Yeah, exactly. So like personally, I'm impressed when I see that. Um, so it's for me, like, how can we grow that, that, Venn diagram or just make it disappear, just have one circle, one big orange circle. Uh, it's very much about like trying to put our focus, you know, as Bitcoiners, we get very enthusiastic about onboarding as many of our friends and family as possible. And that is, you know, that can be important, but the hardest part is that they often don't see or want to see the pain of money, like the, the pain that fiat money is causing them. And this is what people always say, like, in order to explain Bitcoin to someone, you first have to explain to them that money is broken. And it's like having to do that exercise. It's like, well, not easy. A lot of people don't want to hear it. They're not Nobody interested. wants to hear it. Yeah. So, and, and the Bitcoiners have largely kind of focused on like, okay, who does see that money is broken, but maybe not as much as, as we could be, I think. Uh, and that's really like what we're advocating for in the report is try to figure out like who already understands that money is broken in some way. If they have to go work in another country to provide for their family back home, then they kind of understand like there's something not right there, like with the money and with the fees that I'm paying. And there's already some underlying frustration with money where they figured like, you know, what if we could build out local communities and stuff and maybe like sharing something with them, like what's happening in El Zonte 
what's happening in Guatemala, for example, at Bitcoin Lake or any of these kinds of initiatives, just a fun video, like I think his name is uh, Kinetic Finance on YouTube, like uh, Julian Figueroa or something on, on Twitter. Mm -hmm. He made like a really cool documentary of Bitcoin Lake, for example. And that's a really engaging video to watch, which is like, you know, something any TikToker or person that likes watching YouTube videos or something like they would totally watch that because it's it's really well made. Like it can just be something fun like that, where you should have like, wouldn't it be cool, you know, if instead of having to go work abroad to try to earn an income for your money back home, you could get some kind of project going locally. And you have a local community and you, you know, you use something like Bitcoin or it doesn't even have to be Bitcoin, but just instilling the idea in their mind of possibility back home. Like that can be a really powerful tool for them to start feeling some kind of energy around, hey, maybe there is potential in Bitcoin, maybe, or, or at least in some of the thought process behind it, uh, or some of the, the characteristics that it has. And if they're open to that, then you can have far more conversations, I think, but it's about finding that angle that resonates with the person rather than trying to push the angle onto them that resonates with you. For me, that is like just a core part of Bitcoin education and something I want to spend a lot of time helping people understand is like, what are just practical tips that you can use, practical things to help someone understand Bitcoin or, or be interested in it or open to it in some way. And I'm not pretending that I always have the answers that are better at it than other people, but I've done you know a lot of in-person teaching and you just get all the obvious questions from people and you see their faces change when you say certain things, like sometimes for the good, sometimes for the worse. And you just start to get a feel for where do people think you're insane and you're just way past their sort of their frame of the world, the things that they, you know, their day-to-day -day stresses, their job, their kids, everything that's going on. Like, how can you fit something like Bitcoin in there? And does it even make sense for them? Because, you know, it's it's for anyone, but not for everyone, they often say. So is it for them at the right time, right moment? Or am I just pushing a lot of information onto them? Yeah, I was going to say for like the American freaks out there. I think you just let it come to you. I think the last few years, obviously COVID was a big wake up call for a lot of people. We're printing trillions, we're locked down, inflation's going crazy. That obviously created a wave of Bitcoin adopters, a new wave of adoption. I think that'll just continue. Yes, I do understand the the urgency which many people feel, including myself, to get people into Bitcoin if you do view the incumbent financial and banking and monetary system as something that is a bit fragile at the moment and you don't want to see loved ones get hurt but uh, just historically from my experience 10 years in now like they need to come to it and come to you with questions and just be prepared to have the correct questions to ask them and then the answers on the back end as well yeah yeah i've dug into this a bit in the report as well to try to visualize it a bit, made this uh, Bitcoin adoption funnel, which is a kind of a model to figure out like how, you know, what does that journey look like when people discover Bitcoin? And, you know, we're, like you said, we're uh, whole, like over a decade in, and most people have sort of discovered Bitcoin. They've heard about it. They know it exists, like in terms of branding and name, it's done quite well. But a lot of people like they have a first reaction. They're like curious about it because they're just generally an open-minded person, or they might be somewhat receptive, or just kind of see what happens. And, you know, they'll, they'll passively hear the headlines come in, but they don't really care too much. 
But some people are also just very dismissive or prejudiced because it's new, because it's tech, because it's, you know, it's not from the government. So they're just a bit more apprehensive. But in general, people like some, you know, a lot of people will drop out of the funnel here at the top when they just discover it, they hear about it, but they just can't be bothered. And it's not always for bad reasons. It's just good. Keep in mind what I said earlier. A lot of people have a job, they have kids, family, you know, like the wheel of life with the, all the different charts of the uh, different parts of the pie. Mm-hmm. Like how do you balance all of that and then cram Bitcoin in there? That's like kind of important to keep in mind. So a lot of people, they just never get to the learning part. But when they do, it's like, and often this is spared a bit, like people discover Bitcoin through some new segment, uh, some article that they read somewhere. And that has a really big impact for a lot of people because they're like, okay, you know, like, is this, is this just deceptive information that's saying Bitcoin is going to boil the oceans within now and three years? Uh, or like, is it overhyped or is it somewhat nuanced? So the funnel just has a bunch of different stages to, for people to go through like perception, like, you know, what are they left with after that initial learning period? Um, do they use Bitcoin themselves as a big part of this journey as well? Like, like you said, like sometimes you just send them the wallet immediately, they kind of straight up skip to this part. But then the question is, do they actually go back to learning? Do they actually, like they've played around with it a bit, but do they understand at all what is happening or what they should know about it? Uh, so that is still important. And then like what they do with their knowledge, you know, are you going to play an active role in the industry? Will you educate others? Will you build a company? Or are you going to become some kind of detractor that tries to get publications and media to say negative things about Bitcoin? Like there's the negative aspect as well. It's not just let's push tons of people through this funnel and educate them about Bitcoin as much as possible. And that will only ever help because it can also hurt. If you force Bitcoin onto people, they might be like, why are you so pushy? Like, you know, like, are you trying to get me in your, your pyramid scheme or something? Or are you trying to make money off of me? Like what, why are you so aggressive about it or something? So it's much more, I think about thoughtful education and about figuring out what resonates with people than just trying to figure out how can we orange pill as many people as possible and send books and resources to them to get them to consume everything and have the same worldview as me. So for me, that's a really big part of like, not just cross-border payments in Bitcoin, but just Bitcoin adoption in general, growing that it's trying to do it the smart way and not hacking it in the short term with sort of uh, mass market pushes and where a lot of people just ultimately, you know, they're not disciplined enough to go through a journey like that. That's also an issue. Like who is going to spend the time, spend a couple dozen hours or a hundred hours to really understand enough about Bitcoin. Um, that'll be a, a limited subset of all of humanity, I think, because a lot of people just don't spend that kind of time. Um, so it's, yeah, it's all about trying to optimize for that and figure out how can we make the best possible Bitcoin learning experiences for anyone that might have limited time, but they're still interested in it and they want some kind of angle that resonates with them. So for me, that's like a sort of a personal mission and something that I love building out at River. So well, you're doing an incredible job of it, sir. Thank you. What did I uh, What did I say to you at the conference? Let me if I have to find the DMs. What did I say to you? I gotta. I want. I want to get it correct. Um. <laughs> what did I say? I missed it. I must have sent it somewhere else. Or maybe you said it to me. 
I think it was something. Uh, I did say two in person. Yeah, might be. I think it was. If I if I'm big enough to to be on podcasts and conferences, you are big then, enough. You are big enough. Yeah. So. You are big <laughs> Thanks. enough. Thanks. As is evidence of this two-hour rip. Um, I hate to do this, but I got to go to the airport. Uh, I could sit here for another two hours. I had a feeling. Sorry, looking over at the side. I got my the... wife. My wife's calling me. She's like, and Parker Lewis is driving us to the airport, and he's like looking down. I'm like, oh, we're coming. We're coming. Don't worry. Uh, no, it's been a it's been a fun conversation. Well, it's been. I think it's been an important one too, because um, I think the work that you're doing, the context that you're adding to the conversation is very important. Then the data, like you want inform, you want individuals trying to educate and about Bitcoin and build for Bitcoiners to actually understand the world in which they're operating in both externally with the income and payments world. And then internally with what's actually going on with Bitcoin, how people are using it, what tools you can build and how to teach them how to use them. So thank you very much for doing that. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. We'll have to do it again. You have to get stateside next time you're in Austin. Yeah. I haven't been there before, which is going to shock you, but we'll uh, fix that sometime. If you go to New York this summer, let me know. Still be up that way. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Have a good flight. And uh, you enjoy, what is it? It's Wednesday. I'm losing my uh, my sense of time here. I know the feeling. You enjoy your Wednesday night in the Netherlands, okay? Will do. Thank you, sir. All right. We're going to link to all this stuff in the show notes, freaks. That's all we got today. Peace and love. Take care.